2: It's by Faith. I'm Mike Slater. We have a special edition for you today. A couple months back on the TV show, we recorded a special on the book of Genesis. We, we did every book from the Torah. Last week we reintroduced Exodus, and today I want to play for you Genesis. And the point of doing this is because these are really, really old books, and there's a lot of wisdom in them, obviously. And it's just I just want to give you enough to inspire you to go back and read them again. Because... They're true. And we know that what we're doing is not working. So what do we need to do? We got to go back to basics. We got to get back to the basics. Uh, Where do you do that? The beginning, (laughs) Genesis in the beginning. So we uh, have an intro and then we talk with a rabbi about the great men of Genesis. And then we talk with the great Dr. Stephen Meyer from the Discovery Institute. About creation, because I think it's important that we have a conviction about creation, the creation of the world, the creation of us. Uh, I think it's like the popular thing for Christians to to say that creation, like to, to go with the world's view on creation. I'll leave it there and not have a conviction on that. But I just feel like if you don't have a conviction on that, then how can you have a conviction on the rest of the Bible? So we talk with Dr. Meyer on that. He's the best person on this. It's really an honor to talk to him. Genesis has it all. Genesis has incest, betrayal, murder, the first two brothers, <laughs> right? It has everything. It has all the worst stuff in the world because that's human nature. It's all there. I love talking about it. And I love going over seemingly simple nothing sentences like uh, Genesis 8.1 says, he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. There's so much in just a sentence like that. We go over that, I think, in the last segment of the show. There are uh, so much to do with Genesis and we have uh, one hour for you and I hope it inspires you to get back to it. Enjoy. Hey Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Welcome to our special Genesis. We hope to over time uh, go over really have a special for each book of the Bible and there's no better place to start that project than Bereshit, Hebrew for in the beginning. It's the first word of the Bible. Genesis is Greek, it means origin or creation. But first, why does Genesis matter? Why does it matter? Why are we even doing this? Why take the time? Why care? Well, let me ask you this first. How are things going in this country? <laughs> good, good, are things good, fine? Things are going well swimmingly. Wow, that's special that some people think so. I don't, and I reckon you don't either. Something is off. Something is very off. And in every sports movie that's ever been made, you have the underdog team, and then they start to do well, and they get too cocky, right? They get too big for their britches, and then they they lose a game that they should've won, and the coach gets mad, and what do they do after that game that they lost? They don't go back to the locker room, now it's time for practice. Why? Because we got to get back to basics, boys. We're running sprints. We're shooting free throws. Everyone's got to hit 100 before we can leave. No one's leaving until they do. Think Mighty Ducks 2, Coach Bombay, back to basics, skating. And then they skated back and forth, and they did like the drill with the, the eggs and stuff. That's every sports movie. And then when, the, when that team finds the core of who they are again, then they finally get back on track. This is what we need to do individually, each of us, myself included, and also as a culture and a country. We gotta get back to basics. Who are we? Where did we come from? What is human nature? What is the point of life? You wanna know why the suicide rate is so high in America? Of course, there's plenty of factors all coming together, absolutely. But I would argue that the biggest root factor is that we've been told for generations now that we are just groupings of random atoms that randomly came together to form everything and everyone. And humans came from some amoeba in some slime somewhere millions of years ago. And we just somehow evolved into higher life forms. How did that happen? Oh, for millions of years is always the answer, right? We left the fish and the frog and the monkey behind. Oh, we all come from that. And then we live for a while and then we die and there's nothing after we die. So there's no point to life anyway. And if you think that, which is what we're all told from grade school on, why would I continue to suffer anymore, right? If this is all random, it all started randomly and there's no afterlife, Who even cares? And that's what's floating around in most people's heads. We have generations of postmodern atheism drilled into us from a young age, and it's super depressing, right? If you think we're here randomly and we came from frogs and monkeys and nothing happens after you die, I'm surprised everyone doesn't commit suicide. Why wouldn't you? We lost sight of the basics. We have become untethered from the truth that's been known for thousands of years. But deep down, we know there's something more. We know we're not here randomly. We know we didn't evolve from nothing. Something didn't come from nothing. And we know that there must be something more after this. And there's got to be, therefore, some purpose to the here and now. We all know these things. And a lot of people have trouble finding answers to those questions. But where are all the answers? Well, I'll tell you, you just have to go to the self-help section of your local bookstore. No! You gotta ask uh, your favorite Hollywood movie star. They will tell you the secret to life. Or or you can just follow the latest trend from the Silicon Valley tech nerds. They'll tell you, they know the answer to all these questions. Give me a break. They're all in this book. Ancient words that are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, And the words in this book can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your answers are in here, in Genesis, the start, the beginning. And everything in the rest of this book is based on Genesis. Usually when people talk about Genesis or think about Genesis, they think of the creation of the world, right? And then we immediately get derailed into a whole evolution versus creation debate. And we're going to do that coming up with the best person in the country to talk about this. And the creation account is important, of course, for its own sake, right? But also because if Genesis 1 through 3 doesn't tell the truth, then why should we believe anything else in the Bible? If we can't get the beginning right, then we can't get anything right. And if our God is not creator, as atheists believe, but actually more and more Christians believe, only 40% of, of people in America believe in any form of creationism at all. And we'll get to the details of this coming up again in the, in the third segment. But it's an all-time low of Americans believe in a creator who created the earth. And atheists, of course, celebrate this. But if God is not our creator, then he's not the redeemer either. And if we can't believe the first few chapters of the Bible, then you can't believe any of it. So we got to get that part down pat. we got to fully understand that. But also Genesis is a lot more than just creation. It's also about the fall. Why God permits suffering. It's maybe one of the most frequently asked questions of all time. So where's the answer? It's in here. It's in Genesis. It's also uh, about judgment. How does God judge the world? Well, that's in here too. The flood. We need to all intimately No, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Rebecca. They're all in here and many more. I would argue just behind the importance of creation, right? Which again, if we get that wrong, then we get everything else wrong after that. But I think the only, maybe the second most important thing is human nature. I know I'm jumping to a different book of the Bible, but, but Exodus, has just story after story of the Israelites being saved by God over and over and over again and then continuing to disobey and not trust him and worship other gods. And you read these stories and you think, geez, Israelites, how can you be so stupid? God literally saved you from slavery. Miracles abound, parted the red stinking sea, destroyed your enemy, brought manna to you in the mornings to keep you alive in the desert for 40 years, and you're over here worshiping a golden statue of a cow? What is wrong with you? And then I proceed to close my Bible and immediately worship everything else in my life other than God. I have plenty of golden cows that I worship, my job, my bank account, my house, my family, my life. And I worship me thinking that I can do everything and I can do whatever I want, whatever I put my mind to, as the modern expression goes. And I question God constantly. I am just as foolish as the Israelites. Now, I bring that up. I know that's in Exodus, but the point is nothing in human nature has changed in thousands of years. Nothing has changed with human nature in thousands of years. So you want to learn about human nature? Read Genesis. And it's got everything. Genesis has stories of incest, betrayal, deceit, selfishness, murder. The first two brothers, one of them murdered the other. Rape, like all the bad stuff in the world you could possibly imagine. It's all in here because that's human nature. But the great men of the Bible had faith. And faith in God is absolutely essential if you want to flourish. Oh, you can put up a good face. You can drive a nice car and all the rest. Live in a big house, the whole thing. But you won't truly flourish. Back to not just suicide, but also a longing in our hearts. Which everyone has for meaning and truth. We'll just look to Abraham. When God told Abraham to do something, he did it why he's called the father of the faithful. Of course, we're going to talk more about him coming up next. Jacob's story is, is one of conflict with God until he realized his own limitations. Then he trusted God. Then he depended on God. He wanted to live independently of God, but knew he couldn't. And when will we realize this for our own lives? Do you have adversity in your life? Are you going through a tough time? Talk to Joseph about it. You think you're going through tough times? Tell it to Joseph. Betrayed by his brothers, left to die. Not a great day. We can learn everything through Genesis. Everything. Why? It's back to basics. and Man, do we need that. We're going to talk uh, about some of the, the people in Genesis coming up in the next segment. Then we'll talk about creation. And then I want to wrap up, and I'll bring in some current event. Current event stories in the news that if you read them through a Genesis lens, can really drive home that nothing has changed in thousands of years. So let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning. It's one thing to have knowledge, that's good. But with the Word, you'll have wisdom. Let's begin our special on Genesis. Next.
0: Save $80 with code SPACE80 at TalkSpace.com.
2: Hey, Slider Crusaders, welcome back to our special about the book of Genesis. Again, our country's screwed up, and goodness, aren't we all in many ways? So, what better place to look for answers than in the beginning, the book of Genesis? I want to go to a friend of the show. We've talked to him before, Rabbi Yaakov Menkin. He's the managing director of the Coalition. For Jewish values, just to talk about some of the men and women in this book that we can learn so much from. Rabbi, how are you, sir? Doing very well, thank you. Thank you for having we me. Wonderful back. to talk to you. My pleasure. Let's. Uh, well, goodness, we got to start with with the father of the faith. Let's start with Abraham. Tell us a little bit about Abraham and uh, what we need to know about him.
3: And by the way, I have my copy at hand. We did not need to look at anything up in the original. All gracious, right. Genesis. So we're ready to roll. Um, <laughs> Abraham. An interesting contrast uh, that is noted if you go look at the story of of Noah, it says that Noah walked with God, but God sent Abraham to walk out in front of him because Abraham was so completely on the right page with true values and everything else that, that he was able to function without support. That whereas Noah needed a little bit of a helping hand walking with God... Abraham was able to just go walk out in front. You know, imagine uh, one child versus another. When a child is three, they need to walk with you. When a child is 10, they can go out in front and start exploring on their own. Abraham was at that level. I mean, we who can never aspire, you know, never dream to be at the level of either a Noah or an Abraham can still see that the value in trying to have the value so totally internalized that it's like, you know what to do before you're being told. And he was told to do one of the most difficult things that anyone's
2: ever been told to do, all right? And, and the most famous story, I would say, of Abraham, and the, the sacrifice of his son. Tell us about that and what we can learn from that.
3: There are actually, you know, Abraham had 10 tests, and this was the culmination mm. of the test throughout his life and test of sincerity. The, the ultimate test of sincerity for someone like that is here he had been teaching about God and monotheism in a polytheistic idol worshipping world uh, everyone around him believed that you know sacrificing children to gods was an appropriate behavior uh and and here he been oh no human life is of inestimable value uh every uh, every human being has a soul breathed into them by god himself so, of course, God is you know, at, at the center of everything and preservation of life is at the center of everything. How, after an entire career of doing that, can he be asked to sacrifice his own son? It contradicts everything he's set out to do, everything he's ever taught in his life. It would destroy all of his career. And, of course, God had promised him through Isaac through your son, that will be your descendant. That will be your continuity. So it was literally asking Abraham, I want you to throw away everything you've ever done in your life, every hope you have for your personal future, every hope you ever had for your family's future. All of that, I want you to sacrifice. And Abraham, without a question, it says he got up in the morning. He got up early. He was said he was told to do something by God. I'm going to do it first thing, even though it was so destructive. So it wasn't just that he passed; he completely uh, threw out his own considerations, anything that he ever dreamed about himself or his own person, because God told him, "Here's your mission. Here's what you've got to go do."
2: The lesson there is obvious for us and how much we fail in that all the time. When I uh, uh, before I learned about and I read for myself. Um, I imagined Isaac was a baby, but how old was Isaac about when this happened? Uh,
3: according to our sources, 37. Really? Yes. He was not, not a baby at all. He was he was already a very well-qualified, uh, not even a young man by modern standards. Oh, wow. I mean, they lived 170, 170 you know, but still, yeah. you know... He, he already, and he was, of course, following in the path of his father, and he was a very strong individual in his own right. And, you know, it's, it's understood from the verses that it, he had a hint of what was about to happen, and he voluntarily yep. went along anyway. He said, wow. this is what is, we is got it, to do.
2: Where's the ram? Wow, amazing. All right, well, let's talk about Isaac. Well, uh, as, as
3: As he lived, what do we need to take away from Isaac's life? you know the biggest component of 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 Isaac's life is really about that continuity um that you know most you know you you look at families and 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 you know parents turn out the uh, kids turn out different than their parents in all sorts of ways uh but Isaac really followed in the model of his father. Here was his father running totally against the cultural grain and doing this revolutionary thing, teaching all these revolutionary things that nobody else. And he, again, he had been fabulously successful at reaching out to others and getting them to understand that there's a one creator God who's over all of us, et cetera. And Isaac just stepped into that mold and continued. His biggest strength was that he did not deviate from his father's path, but recognizing the correctness of everything his father had taught was following that model precisely and showing that same dedication, like we just described in the sacrifice of Isaac that he too knew what was about to happen and he knew what his role was in it. And yet, just like his father, he said, this is what we gotta do, this is what we were told to do. Wow, just to go back to that story, sorry. So uh, when I thought, uh, before I knew anything, I
2: thought he was a baby. And then I thought maybe Isaac was like 12 and didn't really know what was going on, right? But now that he's older, you're right, he was intimately involved in the whole thing and was still willing to go along just as powerfully and profoundly as Abraham was. That even brings new context that I wasn't aware of. That's
3: beautiful. Uh, And 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 he didn't hear it. He did not hear it directly. Abraham uh, was told by God, go do it. And Isaac asked his father, well, hey, where's the ram? And he says, God himself will show us the ram, my son. And if you read that a second way, it's God will show us the ram. My son is the ram. Mm. And so Isaac knew what was about to happen, and he went along anyway. Let's go, to, um, let's go
2: to Joseph. Let's jump ahead, Joseph. What I mean, there's a ton here, obviously. What's one of your takeaways about Joseph's life today?
3: I, I, you know, Joseph, when I was speaking about how the way that Isaac followed the model of his father exactly, Joseph looked like his father exactly. Uh, we have in our in, in our sources that when Potiphar's wife was trying to tempt him and seduce him, what convinced him, he was about to fall for it, but there was a mirror up on the wall, and he glanced in the mirror, and what does he see? He sees his father's face looking back at him. He knew at that moment he could not deviate. He could not fall into the trap that Potiphar's wife uh, was laying for him. Apologize about that. Um okay that he, that when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him, that he knew he could not fail at that moment when he saw what would lay. And everything throughout his life was about following uh, the path that had been laid for him by his father in a totally different situation. Again, he was like Abraham, again, totally out on his own and yet he built his own culture around himself rather than succumbing to the Egyptian idolatry and everything else that came with it. Uh, so many lessons there for us today, looking back at
1: these
2: men for inspiration today, but also in our, in our godless culture we have today, going the path of God, it's so obvious. What, um, what about, I'm always amazed by Joseph's forgiveness. I mean, uh, the deepest betrayal from his entire family,
3: uh, all of his brothers. Uh, and still forgives them. What, what do you make of that? He knew that it wasn't really from them. he It's very clear from the, just the verses themselves that he understood this was God laying a path for us. This was, you know, mm. the, everything that happened afterwards, me becoming second in command over all of Egypt, that happened because you sold me into slavery. If, if you had not done wow. that, that never would have happened. So it's obvious that there was a whole series of things at work. Look at the story of Joseph and the dreams. You know, Joseph, Pharaoh says, you know what? I had these two really strange dreams. Seven fat cows come out of the river. Seven thin cows come after them, and they eat the fat cows. And then I dreamed about seven fat ears of corn, and then along come seven thin ears of corn, and they eat the fat ears. What's going on? Now, Joseph's insight is really, when you think about it, it's just not that brilliant. You know what the seven fat cows are? They're seven years of plenty. They're seven years of fatness. The corn, seven years of corn. It means that not only are we going to have a lot of meat, we're going to have a lot of vegetables. Everything's going to be great for seven <laughs> years. And then, you know what the seven thin ones are? The famine is going to come and there's going to be seven terrible years and they're going to eat up everything. Now it's all great and fine and well and good after everything happens to say, wow, that was brilliant. That was obvious prophecy. But that's not what happens in the story. The story is immediately Pharaoh listens to him tell that and says, gosh, that's brilliant. We've never heard anything as brilliant as this. In fact, that's so brilliant that we're going to take this prisoner and we're going to put him in charge of the entire country. Where does that come from? It's obvious God was at work here. Because when you think about it, what he said was just obvious that anybody could have predicted that based on those dreams. And whether they come true or not, well, we'll find out in seven years. It only, it only after 14 years did they know that he was really as brilliant as he claimed to be. But no, they immediately put him in charge of the whole country to make sure that everything worked out.
2: Amazing.
3: We've got about 60 seconds, Rabbi.
2: Um, why would you encourage someone who's never read Genesis before, Uh, or someone who uh, has heard the nursery rhyme stories, perhaps, right? Like I was uh, before I I read it for the first time, right? Like, you know Noah just through the ether casually, but you don't really know the story. Why should someone go back and read it properly?
3: Well, first of all, everybody's got to go read Genesis. And and the, the interesting thing about, you know, so many things, nursery rhymes, like you just said, nobody goes back and reads nursery rhymes again in their 80s. Uh, The Bible is a a unique type of work in that you have people who are five years old understanding and learning new lessons, people who are 50 learning new lessons, people who are 100 learning new lessons. So there's always room to review, but our basic values are all there. You mentioned how society is messed up right now. So many of the things that are messed up in society, you can clarify right here. You wanna know how many genders there are? Read the Bible. You want to know what marriage is and how marriage is related to children? You read the Bible. You want to know the value of human life? Read the Bible. You want to know the value of monotheism over idolatry? You read the Bible. You want to know that there's everybody has value and there's equal justice under the law and the importance of education? You read the Bible. It's all there. And we wonder, and we wonder why we
2: become so untethered and lost. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Coalition for Jewish Values, the managing director. Rabbi, wonderful to talk to you, sir. Thank you for your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Tremendous. Uh, coming up next, we'll talk about the the beginning, <laughs> the, the very beginning, creation versus evolution. This is essential. This isn't just some detail that we can kind of like casually have our opinions about. It is essential that we get this right. And it's also essential that we don't merge what the Bible says with, uh, oh, this, well, like the evolution and the but we kind of put them all. No, have a conviction. And we'll talk with the best person to talk about this in the country coming up next. Mike Slater, spread the word. <laughs> Hey, Slater Crusaders, welcome back to our special about Genesis. Now, when most people think Genesis, they think of in the beginning, like the beginning of Genesis and the beginning of creation. And it is so important that we have a conviction about this, a conviction about the creation of the universe and the creation of the world and the creation of us. And I know a lot of Christians will kind of brush this aside and say, oh, it doesn't really matter. Let's not minor in the major or major in the minors. And we can all kind of come together and, and have our own little opinions about this issue, but I say no, we must have a conviction about this because if we don't on the first beginning chapters, then how can we believe anything else that the Bible says? The person to talk about this is Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's the director of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. Please go check out their website and all the wonderful resources they have there. And you must read Return of the God Hypothesis. Dr. Meyer, how are you, sir?
1: Very well. and very happy to be back chatting with you.
2: Wonderful to talk to you again. If you could speak to that. Why does this matter? Why can't we all just have our own different opinions about well, uh, the beginning of the universe?
1: Well, every, every worldview has um, uh, what philosophers call a prime reality. That is to say, uh, a, a claim about the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else came. And the the Judeo-Christian claim is that the thing from which everything else came is a transcendent Creator, separate from matter and energy, space and time, um, and not the not the same as the material the material or physical universe. The dominant worldview in our elite knowledge culture today is uh, what might be called naturalism or materialism, and it's often um, modified with the term scientific. The idea that science has shown that matter and energy, that the natural world made of matter and energy, is the thing from which everything else came, and that science supports that view. Um, Those are two diametrically opposed worldviews. And from those two worldviews, all sorts of different things flow about, for example, the sanctity of life, or about our understanding of human nature. Are we completely determined? Uh, by the material stuff of our bodies, or do we have something like agency or free will? Are we do we have a, a dual nature in which we are both spiritual, I- I- intellectual on the one hand and material as well? And uh, the way you answer those basic philosophical questions, which are worldview questions ends up affecting your views on almost every other issue that you could think of and also uh, they, end, they end up affecting the way you li- live your life. And so, the most important affirmation of the Genesis account for the very beginning is that there was a beginning to the, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy. And that u- physical universe came from a pre-existing intelligence or mind or creator um, called, uh, by most people, God. Love all that.
2: Can you give me one specific example of, of, of how someone maybe lives their life differently or even an opinion they may have based on those two different worldviews. And, and I ask this because I grew up an atheist, uh, been a Christian for maybe eight or nine years. So it's funny growing up in an atheist culture with atheists around me, how I, I have different worldviews. And now as I transition to, with a different worldview now, I don't even maybe know all the ways that I, that I was made or that, that I became, that I had the views that I had as I'm transitioning to this different world. Does that kind of make sense? So what yeah, are some things that sense. most people yeah. don't even, most people don't even realize is created by an evolutionary mindset.
1: Yeah, let, let, let I mean, there's so many, but let's let's just pick a couple. The the first a very pop or a very controversial issue in our culture today is the issue of abortion, or the issue of the sanctity of life, or on the one hand, um, or as it be framed on the other, the, the the pro-choice view, and underlying that contest of ideas and uh, disagreement about policy. Is a different conception of human nature. The people on the pro-choice side don't believe that that abortion is murder because they think that the pre-born infant, the fetus, uh, is merely a collection of cells. It's a material object, not a, a an, uh, an agent with personhood. On the other side, people who have a more Judeo-Christian or theistic worldview. Uh, tend to view the, the pre-born infant as a pre-born human which, 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 that is not just a, um, a, a physical object, but an object, a person made in the image of God uh, with in, inherent dignity. So that would just be one example, but there are other ones. And yeah. this our worldviews affect our political philosophies. Uh, in the, in the, the, the 1600s in Britain, there was a dramatic change in thinking about politics that was predicated on a biblical understanding of human nature. Uh, there was a famous book by a Scottish Presbyterian minister called Rex Lex, uh, The Law is King. And the idea there was that, that, um, that because there is a, a transcendent law of God and that all human law must be derived from that transcendent law of God, that even the king is accountable to that law. And therefore, the king does not have absolute power. There isn't a divine right of kings, nor do kings have, uh, have um, ultimate power simply because they have power. Um, but rather rights are derived from, the, from God's uh, creation of us, and therefore those in power are accountable to respect those rights, and therefore there are limitations on the power of the state and on the power of the king. So there's just two examples um, that where, where, in, where a theistic worldview leads to very different practical consequences in how we live mm-hmm. in the public sphere.
2: Beautiful. Um, what do you make of the effort by many, and I did this as well before I became a Christian, in the, in the, in the name of coexisting, of saying, okay, I believe in evolution, uh, but uh, God made it, or God created this process, so that way we can all get along together. Right? What, what do you make of that uh, attempt?
1: Well, we, we've written, we've, we've produced a very big book about this concept called theistic evolution with uh, contributions from scientists, philosophers, and theologians. It's called theistic evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and uh, theological critique. Um, the basic meaning of the, the, the problem starts with the different meanings of evolution. Evolution can simply mean change over time. And if your idea is that God has caused change over time, well, there's nothing incoherent about that. Um, but if the, but evolution can also mean that there's been a completely undirected unguided process that has produced everything that has changed over time uh all the different forms of life on earth and uh reconciling that with any meaningful form of theism let alone a specifically biblical form or biblical christianity is very difficult because uh the uh, it's it's uh logically incoherent to say that God has guided an unguided process, that God has guided a process that is undirected. And yet Darwinian evolution denies that there is real design in nature. It, it claims that, the, that organisms have exhibit the appearance of design, but there's no actual design because there was an unguided, undirected natural process that produced that appearance. And so Darwinian evolution is committed to the idea of an unguided, undirected form of change over time. And that's inconsistent with the idea that God did something to cause uh, different forms of life to arise. And so that's where the tension is. It's essentially logical. In addition, uh, the, the Darwinian mechanism of mutation and selection is increasingly questioned by leading even evolutionary biologists. I attended a conference in 2016 at the Royal Society in London, called by or convened by a group of leading evolutionary biologists who are dissatisfied with the standard textbook theory of evolution because they doubt that the mutation natural selection mechanism has genuine creative power it does a good job of explaining small-scale variations how finch beaks get a little bigger a little smaller in response to varying weather, weather patterns or how uh how uh, the the famous peppered moths in England changed changed their coloration in response to variations in uh, air quality, but it does a poor job of explaining the origin of birds or insects or mammals or 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 animals in general in the first place. That, that these major innovations in the history of life are not well explained at all by small-scale random variations in the genome, and so leading evolutionary biologists are questioning the creative yes. power of Darwinian evolution. And I think it's very ironic, therefore, that you have leading Christians, um, often biologists and Christian colleges or groups like BioLogos, claiming that uh, the, the, the mutation selection mechanism is the means by which God created. If it's not a creative yes. uh, process, then why attribute God's creativity to it? Oh,
2: how amazing that even evolutionary biologists are starting to question, or questioning and abandoning perhaps, as Christians are, are, are joining in, wild. And that was, This is this a, actually things. a very
1: significant trend in the field. Uh, there's a, was, mm. there was a whole group of evolutionary biologists who term themselves third way, and they, mm. they don't accept intelligent design, which is the view that I and my colleagues are advancing. Uh, but they are very critical of neo-Darwinism, mm-hmm. the standard textbook theory that we all learn. Mm. They don't really have an adequate alternative yet. And I, I discuss this at yeah. length in my second book, Darwin's Doubt, for people who might be interested in exploring yep. that issue more.
2: There, there's two things that made me question evolution more than anything. That, that one we were just talking about, that even they're questioning it. And the second thing was that the or, Darwin's Origin of Species never even attempts to explain the origin of species. Is, is that the most talked about book that has, is like the least read book? The Origin of Species doesn't even try. What do people today, what do these evolutionary biologists today, what's their best, att- <clears throat> best stab at where life first came from?
1: Well, oh, yeah, I think what you're you're referring to is that uh, Darwin's uh, Origin of Species didn't ad- attempt or address the que- the ultimate question of the origin of the first life. How do you get from yeah. simple non-living chemicals in a prebiotic environment? Uh, in what Darwin imagined, he called it a, a warm little pond, and other scientists have called the prebiotic soup. How do you get from those chemicals to an actual living cell? And in Darwin's time, uh, this was thought to be a, a fairly simple problem because they had a very simplistic understanding of what constitutes the living cell. It constitutes the smallest unit of living uh, of, of living stuff. Uh, one of Darwin's colleagues uh, described the uh, the cell as a simple homogeneous globule of undifferentiated protoplasm. Well, that was the 1860s, 1870s view, but post Watson and Crick in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Biologists now know that inside the living cell, we have a complex information storage, transmission and processing system. DNA literally contains digital code and that digital code directs the construction of proteins, which in turn process information on the DNA and also perform all the other important jobs in the cell. It's something like an automated factory. And in addition to all that, we've discovered little tiny nanomachines, uh, rotary engines, sliding clamps, Um, uh, little turbines, little robotic walking motor proteins that tow vesicles of materials from one part of the cell to another where they're needed for various processes. This is anything but uh, undifferentiated protoplasm. And as our view of the complexity of the cell has advanced, it's forced a complete revision of our understanding of the origin of life. It's not plausible to think that a few simple chemical reactions would have produced the intricacy of, of design that we see at this foundational level and moreover we know from experience the digital code which is what dna stores always arises from an intelligent source whether we're talking about a section of software or hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book information in a digital form and again that's what we found at the foundation of life always arises from a mind, not an undirected material process. So I've argued in, I'm sorry to mention all the books I've done, but the first one is called uh, Signature in the Cell, and it was precisely about this uh, question Mm. of origin of the first life, how it's presented a mystery to evolutionary theorists, but it does seem to. Uh, but the the cell presents evidence, which is best explained by the action of a designing intelligence. That being based on our uniform and repeated experience of cause and effect. Again, we always, whenever we see information and trace it back to its source, we always find a mind, an intelligence, not an undirected material process.
2: Doctor, I tell you, whenever uh, you know, the Bible says, "I believe, help me in my unbelief," and whenever I have these doubts. Uh, I always go back to everything you just said there. And I go back to your writings and your work in the Discovery Institute um, to, to begin and re, re uh, go back to the beginning of my first belief and, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm just incredibly grateful for you. And so we gotta run, we're very late, but um, just like 30 seconds. What What is science? You mentioned the very first thing about, they put science, scientific evolution at the beginning of it to give it that little air of, of esteem. Uh, What is science in evolutionary biology? How is that even possible?
1: Well, there's uh, sometimes people object to the, the argument we make for intelligent design by saying, well, but that's not science. To be scientific, you must stick to a strictly materialistic explanation for everything, even the origin of the universe and the origin of life. But we have lots of examples where we infer mind or intelligence from the physical evidence in front of us. If you walk into the Uh, British Museum, and you look at the Rosetta Stone, uh, you see these beautiful etchings uh, that represent, as we've now figured out, three different languages describing the same events. And when the archaeologists first discovered the Rosetta Stone, they didn't say, oh, gee, this must be wind and erosion or some sort of chemical etching. They recognized immediately that because there was information inscribed on this slab of rock, there must have been a scribe, there must have been an intelligence, because we know from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning, that information always comes from an intelligence. So again, the discovery of information at the foundation of life, and even the simplest living cells, points to a prior designing mind or intelligence. And that's a perfectly scientific inference based on Mm. physical evidence.
2: Tremendous. Uh, Stephen Meyer the Discovery Institute everyone go to the Discovery Institute buy all the books watch all everything and and have a conviction about this issue I find it to be of the utmost importance Doctor wonderful to talk to you again so thank you for your time
1: it's great to be with you Mike thanks so much great stuff
2: let's wrap up next we'll bring some current events back into the uh, story of Genesis it's all here it's all in the beginning Mike Slater spread the word Hey, Sighted Crusaders, welcome to our final segment on our special about Genesis. And the big takeaway is that Genesis and the Old Testament, the Bible in general, is not some old book that has nothing to do with today. It has everything to do with today. And I'll just pick three here from Genesis that are relevant right now. First, Adam and Eve, of course. Genesis 2.16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat from it you will certainly die okay clear command don't eat from that tree but you can have any other tree you want then the serpent came to eve which is interesting why eve not adam that's for another day and the serpent said to eve did god really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden no that's not what god said he said you can eat from any tree just not this one and the serpent says you're not gonna die For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So then Eve ate it. Now, why is this important? The devil's attack was threefold. And see if you see the same thing today. First, exaggerate. Make God's commands seem absurd and oppressive. Second, attack God's motive. Why is God so mean? Why is he preventing you from being the real you and doing what you want to do? And number three is... You won't suffer if you disobey God. In fact, your life's going to be better. You'll be like God. This is what people do today when they deceive. They exaggerate. They denigrate the other's motives. And they promise a reward if you follow me. We can take abortion, feminism, you name it, right? Uh, First lie is uh, to women, uh, uh, the patriarchy is oppressing you. And then deceiving you, uh, or deceiving the motives. Men hate you. They want to hurt you, and they want you to be oppressed. And then the lie at the end, the promise. Oh, be a feminist, go work. You'll make a ton of money and your life will be really fulfilling. You won't be a slave in the kitchen anymore. The allure of communism. First, capitalism is oppressing you. Second, capitalists just want all your money. They don't love you. And third, support communism. We love each other. We're we're a family. It's the same model as the serpent did. Nothing changes, right? Abortion supporters, that baby's oppressing you. It's gonna ruin your life. Kill it and all your problems will go away the same threefold process. On a personal level, this is the story of all sin today. The serpent is the voice inside of you saying that you should be God-like, that you can rely on yourself to determine what is right and wrong. This is why today people more and more rely on their feelings to determine what is right and wrong. They're not relying on God. They don't rely on thousands of years of human experience and wisdom. They don't rely on the Bible. Each person is their own God. So they just rely on their emotions. How's that going for? So every time you hear about microaggressions from college kids and people with fake outrage and everyone getting overwhelmed and angry and anxious all the time, that's why. It's Genesis 3, people determining for themselves what is right and wrong. And also with Adam and Eve, a good example of how we're never satisfied with what we have. Adam and Eve had everything. They were never hungry, never sick, no disease, not even death. And it still wasn't enough. And we're the same today. We always want more. We're so unsatisfied. And we look to everything in the world to make us content you'll never get it from the world. Second story from Genesis, Genesis 19, right? Two angels come to visit Lot in Sodom, and the townspeople were so ravenous, they were banging on the door of Lot's house to sleep with these two angels that were visiting him. And Lot was so desperate, he offered these men his two virgin daughters to sleep with, but it wasn't enough for these townspeople. So the angels blinded the men, but instead of giving up, it made the men even more ravenous, and just completely consumed by their lust. We're no different today. We do things we know are wrong. We know are bad. We know are harmful. Harm others and harm ourselves. And we continue to do them anyway. We continue to bang down the doors of sin. So the angel said, we got to get out of here, Lot. Take your wife and your daughters. Let's go. And Lot wouldn't go. The angels had to tell him six times before he finally left. So what's some relevancy here? There's a ton of examples. But literally, we don't like to leave our town. In Nazi Germany, there was anti Semitic law after anti Semitic law, and so many Jews stayed until they were rounded up and killed. But the metaphor here is for our sin. We linger in it, we wallow in it, we tie ourselves to it. We're warned to stop it. We know we should, but we don't. We mock our sin, we belittle it. Delay is Satan's device for our destruction. Who said that? Spurgeon? I think it was Spurgeon. Delay is Satan's device for our destruction. So God destroys Sodom, right? Genesis 19, 25. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Check out this article from the Smithsonian just this year. Ancient cities' destruction by exploding space rock may have inspired the biblical story of Sodom. So these archaeologists found uh, this town that was destroyed with intense heat, right? Things that were there that were melted. And they concluded that a meteor with a thousand times the power of the atom bomb over Hiroshima landed down on this uh, town. And what's funny about this is the atheist scientists think that this is what inspired the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as opposed to it actually being the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Third example, Noah. You think you know the story of Noah, right? I implore you to read it in the Bible. It's different than you think you know it. It's certainly different than the kids' versions with the cartoon giraffe's head sticking out of the boat and all this stuff, right? My favorite part of that story is Genesis 8.1. God, he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded, It's obviously after the flood. And at the end of it, he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. And that was the end of the flood. Now there's other ancient flood stories around the world, which to me prove the existence of the flood. And in those stories, the gods either didn't start the flood or were powerless to stop it, right? The gods of the Mesopotamian flood story, they were scared of the flood. They couldn't stop it on their own. Why? Ancient people worshiped nature. They put nature on the highest pedestal. The West, Judeo-Christian value, understands that God is the creator and God is in charge of everything and he's in charge of nature. When we don't worship God, we revert back To worshiping nature again just like all the other pagan idol worshiping for thousands of years this is the environmentalist movement let me slow this down this is super important so the bible is god-centered and then a people-centered worldview when god is no longer centered then people are no longer of value right because we're made in his image so if god's gone then the value of people is gone and when people are no longer of value something else must rise to the top and that thing is nature that is the root of environmentalism. That Mother Nature is of the highest value, and we humans are a destructive force against it. Right? We're randomly here, right? We're just a collection of particles, right? We're just one of, the, one of the animal kingdom. No different than the fish and the monkeys and the birds. But we hurt the earth. As our last guest was saying, there's a massive difference between being created in God's image and being a random collection of particles. And this is why, among other things, environmentalists won't let the the third world have fossil fuels. The thing that made us a first world country, we won't let the third world have it because fossil fuels are bad for Mother Nature, they say. So we keep a majority of the world in poverty for the sake of Mother Earth. This is also the root of many people who believe that there's too many people on the planet, right? We're a parasite killing it. Why? Because it, nature, is of the highest value. God doesn't exist, and people are no longer valued that is an enormous life-changing philosophical difference from one line in Genesis 8:1 he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded we got to go there's millions of lessons to be learned in Genesis i hope if nothing else this inspires you to get in it maybe the first time maybe the thousandth time get back in it because we got to get back to basics and also know as you read it know that it's really about Jesus. He is the true and better version of everyone in Genesis. The true Savior. First passion. Thanks for being here.
1: Mike Slater. the work.